Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson, I'm an economist here at Judge Business School in Cambridge. In this series, specialists from the Cambridge Judge Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on energy and energy policy. One of the primary drivers of economic growth since the Industrial Revolution has been access to energy. But the industry is in transition and faces major challenges. First, some sources of non-renewable energy are running out, and the burning of fossil fuels has caused major damage to the environment. Second, many countries rely on international supplies of energy. This has been fine in a stable global economy, but with an increasingly fragmenting global economy, the issue of global energy security is becoming more important. And third is the issue of what business model is best to deliver efficient and reliable supplies of energy. We've seen the liberalization of energy markets, but is the free market the best mechanism to deliver secure, safe, and environmentally sustainable energy? Joining me today to discuss these important topics are Professor Michael Pollitt, Professor of Business Economics and Director of the MPhil and Technology Policy at Cambridge Judge Business School, and Dr. David Reiner, University Senior Lecturer in Technology Policy at Cambridge Judge Business School. Michael and David are both also assistant directors of the Energy Policy Research Group at the University of Cambridge. So welcome to both Michael and David. Perhaps we could kick off with perhaps a big question. Um, what are the major challenges facing the energy sector, which uh, many people argue is, is currently in a period of, uh, of transition? Uh, David. Great. Uh, thank you, Michael. The, uh, the way that we often describe some of the, the challenges or trade-offs in the energy sector is to talk about a, a trilemma, that we ha essentially have these three often competing areas in which uh, we face uh, competition between uh, energy security, so concerns over uh, whether you have uh, access to energy, whether that's indigenous supply, uh, whether you're relying on uh, imports, often from countries that may be uh, geopolitically uh, difficult. Um, uh, so, so energy security on, on one side, uh, economics, uh, meaning both thinking about the impact on consumers and uh, the impact on uh, national competitiveness, so looking at uh, uh, energy-intensive industries. And then a third, uh, which I think has become increasingly important in, in, in the last few years, last few decades, and has, I think, driven a lot of these policies, which is the environment. And that, again, historically had been a focus on a more a local, environmental uh, impacts, but increasingly is also now focused on global impacts, particularly climate change. And so the question, which has become a, almost a defining question now for the, for the energy sector, is how to decarbonize, how to move away from our traditional reliance on fossil fuels, uh, which has been you know, about 80% of, of energy for decades now, uh, and how to, how to move away from that traditional reliance on coal, uh, petroleum, oil, and, and natural gas, and move towards either renewable sources or other uh, low-carbon or non-carbon sources such as, such as nuclear power. So with any trilemma, they're very difficult to solve. <laughs> I mean, do you have a, a view about which, which are the most important of those three factors to, um, to deal with at first? I mean, I, part of the problem is that at different periods of time uh, and, and different uh, interest groups uh, will prioritize those differently. Um, so in the midst of a recession, 
uh, we may find it very difficult to focus on uh, the non-economic, you know, non-competitiveness uh, non issues. Um, so if you just take the European Union as a whole, um, in, in kind of the post-global financial crisis era, kind of 2009, 10, 11, there was a very strong emphasis on competitiveness, which was starting to, uh, if, if not push aside, then at, then at least kind of diminish the, the, um, the attention that had been given to, to environment. So we see we, we tend to see bits of you know sort of cycles and, and ups and downs in terms of how we how we think about reconciling these these trade-offs. Okay, you raised those three important issues, and we'll, we'll try and unpack them a little bit more in the future. But, but uh, Michael, what's your your take on the the major challenges? Well, I think the major challenge is that um, the world faces uh, a massive climate environmental challenge. Um, that has led significant parts of the world to set very ambitious climate goals, um, including the European Union. Um, those climate goals, which are looking to take 80% of um, CO2 equivalent emissions out of the uh, energy system by 2050 relative to 2090, those have major implications for the energy sector. And if those goals are going to be realized, they will require an energy transition. Um, and I, and I, I would want to pick you up on something you said at the beginning. Um, fossil fuels are not running out. The, and the actual problem is that, if anything, fossil fuels are becoming easier to access. Um, and uh, there is no shortage of fossil fuels. Uh, that means that unless we have serious environmental policy, and that that policy is coordinated across the world, there is no way we will meet these ambitious climate goals. Fossil fuels are not running out? No, not in any, not in any meaningful sense. In any scientific sense? I, not, I mean... We, we are we're burn, we're burning, we're burning know, them as, more than they're being replaced. Um, as an economist, they're not running out in a meaningful sense. You know, people used to have this argument, didn't they, about wood. People said that wood was running out. Um, uh, Stanley Jevons famously said that coal was running out, but actually, what happened is we moved on from uh, from wood. We moved on. We we moved on from coal, and even coal has still not run out. Um, Jevons was actually wrong about coal. Um, so there, there's no shortage of fossil fuels in a meaningful sense, and we all know that in the very long run, there are sources of energy which will never run out. Um, uh, direct as access to sunshine and utilization of wind resources. There is enough uh, renewable resource out there, but it's still relatively expensive relative to these huge amounts of fossil fuels that remain unburnt uh, in the world. But actually, whether they're running out is actually probably not the important point. The important point is the use of renewables damaging the environment. Absolutely. And so... Uh, the use of fossil fuels, then. Use of fossil fuels damage, damaging the environment. I mean, so we can... I think that's a secondary issue about where they're running out. And actually, the more important issue, more important issue is about the issue about climate change. Um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about that the industry can achieve long-term climate change objectives? Well, I think picking up on uh, David's trilemma, I think that uh, I've become more optimistic over the last few years because we have seen a really quite spectacular reduction in the cost of both wind and 
uh, solar energy. And I think that has at least raised the possibility that we can address um, the, the environmental objectives that we have for the energy sector um, at reasonable cost. Um, so, I, so I think the trade-off between cost and the environment has got better. I think there still remains an issue about whether deep decarbonisation has some energy security aspect to it because there are still some technical challenges around having a fully renewable uh, energy system. Um, you know, we've still got to address um, seasonal availability of, um, of, of, of wind and solar. And there are some challenges intraday in having enough um, renewable energy available at the times when people actually want to use energy. David, are you optimistic? Um, probably less so. I mean, one of, one of the reasons why climate change is so difficult is that it's because, it's because it's a global public good. So we're used to dealing with... We should add, I think we all believe in climate change. Oh, right? yes. I'm a very strong advocate that this is a very serious problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, which makes me, you know, I, I think um, uh, less than <laughs> pleased if I observe, you know, the trends in, in CO2 emissions. Uh, so what we've seen over the, you know, if you take uh, the Kyoto Protocol as, as a date, 1997, when, when the international community nominally started trying to, to address the problem of, of climate change, um, you look at, look at global trends in emissions and you don't see 1997, you don't see any of, you know, you don't see uh, Paris in 2015, which is the most recent international agreement. Um, you just see emissions continuing to increase. Uh, you know, it is true, as, as Michael said, that a, a few jurisdictions like the UK, um, uh, like the Europeans in general, a few other countries have made these very ambitious commitments. Um, but it's, as I said, it's a global problem. So over the, the period of 1997 to today, uh, Chinese coal production has increased from 1 billion tons to 3 billion tons. You know, Chinese, you know, it's, it's completely understandable. It's driven by that other bit of the, the equation, which is uh, living standards and, and, and providing, you know, quality of life to, to um, Chinese uh, uh, citizens, uh, that, that we've seen them go from, from being uh, energy poor um, to, you know, building, you know, essentially the equivalent of the UK grid every year in coal plants uh, for 15 years. And so that has meant that they've increased from, you know, 1 billion to 3 billion tons of, of, of coal. Um, that means that China has driven the, 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 the large increase of, of, of global CO2 emissions. Uh, their emissions are actually starting to flatten. Uh, but of course, now we have other countries like India, like Vietnam, uh, many other countries which understandably say uh, we want cheap, reliable energy, we want cheap, reliable electricity, um, and, and we're going to provide it to our, uh, to our citizens. And it's very difficult for us in a very comfortable uh, and very comfortable lives in the West um, to say that we're going to have these increased commitments to to reduce our emissions, to uh, to rely increasingly on 
on renewables, I think it's much harder in, 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 in the, you know, the global context where you have uh, you know, developing countries, emerging economies uh, that, are, that, are, that will want to uh, rely on sort of continued extraction of, of fossil fuels. A, a, a positive thing, a positive, I don't know, glimmer is the right word, but I, I think a very positive development has been the rapid reduction in the costs of, of photovoltaics, so solar, solar panels, and of, of wind. And so that does mean, particularly for uh, remote villages, that's great in terms of, of you know, getting access to, um, to electricity. Um, so you know, solar, solar is better than having to rely on diesel generators as they've, as they've had to. Um, but, but the problem, and this is you know, where I think we'll probably come to as well, is, is um, the nature of, of renewables at the, is that they're variable. Other than if we're burning wood, or other, <laughs> going back to Jevon, uh, other, uh, uh, other than biomass um, uh, or, or nuclear, which has all sorts of other societal issues, uh, most of the, the, the um, cleaner, more newer renewable, more modern renewables like solar and wind are variable. And, and the problem is uh, we still need uh, heating, uh, we still need uh, the lights on on a cold winter night when the wind's not blowing, the sun's not, not, shi not shining. And so I think that is one of the big tensions in all this. Just to unpack that tension, two parts of your trilemma. We got the concern about the environment and developing countries growing to improve the standard and quality of life for their citizens. Now, how do we deal with that challenge? But you, you mentioned uh, China, but China's investing a lot in solar energy. You mentioned other countries such as India. Uh, and we certainly don't want to get in the position, do we, where the West is sort of um, trying to um, uh, lecture uh, other countries about development, which would really be pulling up the ladder. We've, we've damaged the environment. It's a bit rich for us to go and say to other countries, you cannot follow the growth path that we have because you're going to damage our environment. So how, how do we deal with that challenge? I mean, you're saying that you know, China is using an awful lot, producing an awful lot of coal, um, but is also investing in lots of other uh, sectors as well. But how do we, deal with, how do we deal with that big challenge of allowing developing countries to emerge and grow without damaging the environment? Uh, I mean, there isn't an easy answer to that. I mean, uh, part, of, part, of, part of that equation is also that um, China's uh, growth has also included a significant growth in steel production. Uh, you know, coal. You know, driven driven by coal, uh, and we're importing that steel. We're closing down our own steel plants, uh, and that has all sorts of <laughs> uh, implications in terms of our own uh, economies and, uh, uh, and industrial um, policies. Um, and we're importing uh, dirtier, more carbon-intensive, CO2-intensive steel from abroad. Um, so, so uh, how do we deal with this? I mean, I think there's one argument that, in the first place, we get our house, our own house in order. When, when I say we, I think the world economy deals with it, really. I mean, oh, as the world yeah, economy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I mean, I, I think. Um, well, I think one thing to say is that those countries that are taking a leadership role have have that duty, right? So, um, so part of the reason why um, solar panel costs have come down so dramatically was. You know, it started off actually in, in the U.S. with a lot of work coming out of, of national labs there, but it was a big big part of it through the 90s was uh, Germany giving massive subsidies to its uh, its homeowners 
um, to install uh, solar panels on their rooftops. And that, you know, through economies of scale, drove down costs significantly. It then moved to China, uh, still using German IP, a lot of it, uh, and, and, um, and now we're importing uh, those solar panels from, from China. So that's, that's a, I think, a much more positive story uh, of, of how, how kind of the global economy is beginning to get their heads around it. Michael. Well, I, th I, I think if you're asking for a direction uh, forward, I, I think one can see some glimmers of hope. Uh, I mean, I think one of the most encouraging things is the, the, the commitment to climate change isn't just about science. It is about um, a citizen concern about climate change and about the quality of the environment. Um, and I think one of the interesting developments that we've seen recently is the connections that have been made between um, fossil fuel use for transport and local air pollution. So we can see that actually there's quite a lot of movement in major cities around um, reducing car use and moving people off into public transport, more sustainable-based living. And I think what's good about that is that we need to solve the global public goods problem around um, decarbonisation. And of course, that is very difficult because of the distributional nature of, of where the emissions come from and who will pay for their reduction. Um, so what the, the emergence of connecting climate change with the local environment is actually a very encouraging development. We can see that the combination of major cities wanting to clean up their environment and new technologies being available for them to do that that is one potential way forward and getting us out of the, all we need to do is reach a global agreement, uh, introduce a global carbon market, which of course would be the economist sort of standard solution to this. Um, but it's been very difficult to make much progress on implementing a global solution to anything. And not surprisingly, it's, it's, it's been difficult to implement a global solution to climate change. Looking at this this issue again, the, these part of the trilemma, this this competitiveness, environmental concern between competitiveness and environmental concerns. This leads onto the business model argument. But what's the role of the state here? What's the role of the market uh, and the, the combination of the two? Because there has been an increasingly trend to liberalise energy markets on the argument that this would make it more competitive and drive down prices and increase competition. That's that's one aspect of that. But what about dealing with the environmental challenges and the public good issue here? I mean, what, what, where's the role of the state in this? You mentioned that um, the technology going from Germany to, um, to China, but that technology was largely subsidized by German taxpayers, presumably in the EU. Um, where's the role of the state here? Not only in terms of regulating markets, but developing the technology to try and improve environmental sustainability. I mean, I think one, one key point here is that um, uh, electricity, in many ways, is easy. Um, so, one, one just, of, just just explain that. In what respect is it easy? It, it, well, it's easy in the sense that it's um, uh, other than some you know some wires that go between <laughs> between places like between the UK and France and so on. Uh, it, it's it's essentially uh, localized to um, to to every country, uh, and so 
you don't get into uh, international competitiveness concerns or considerations. So one, one of the, the, the real challenges of, of addressing, I mentioned steel, but any sort of trade exposed sectors uh, is that uh, those sectors can justifiably say, uh, if I don't get the cheapest possible energy, I'm going to up and leave and go wherever I can find the, the access to the cheapest resources. And, and for some sectors like uh, aluminum or, or steel and so on, energy is a very large component of that, right? So uh, electricity, on the other hand, um, isn't something that we can do. It isn't a sector that has the ability to say, we're going to go off and move elsewhere. So essentially, a government, if they are trying to regulate, is actually in a much better position to impose environmental restrictions on the power sector. And so, and I think the other advantage that we have in terms of the power sector is that there are a large number of available alternatives for decarbonization. So there isn't a single route or there, isn't, there, are, you know, a lot, there are a lot of fairly good options. Uh, we can quibble about uh, whether you do or don't want nuclear, whether, whether we do or don't believe that, that, uh, that um, a storage can come along and, and, and support uh, 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 variable renewables such as, as solar and wind. Um, there's a whole set of discussions over um, continuing to use fossil fuels, but then capturing the CO2 and storing it underground, called you know carbon capture and storage or CCS. Um, but but at least in the power sector, we have a number of of options available um, to us, and and a sector that that isn't about to kind of <laughs> uh, leave and and go find another uh, home quickly. Um, so, so again, historically, there's been the view that this is this is a good place to start, and, th and that's why we should be uh, focusing on, on on the power sector. As we start to get into other aspects of of uh, the energy sector, then then it gets more and more. So, how do we complex. deal with those hard to reach sectors, whether they be aviation or transportation or energy intensive industries? Well, I mean, I think on transport, as, as Michael said, there, there are some significant um, co-benefits uh, associated with uh, moving away from fossil vehicles towards, towards low emissions uh, vehicles, electric vehicles, and so on. So, um, so I think that's a very positive thing. I think over the last just couple of years, you've seen this very dramatic uh, uh, change uh, uh, in, in um, I think uh, public consumer attitudes towards electric vehicles, towards uh, um, towards the large automotive uh, companies' views of of the potential for those uh, electric vehicles not to be sort of marginal, but to, to increasingly play a larger and larger role in terms of their own portfolios, in terms of their own um, sales, uh, and 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 that's combined with um, uh, some uh, some. Problems that we've had in terms of local air pollution, or and, and diesel gate on top of that, in 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 terms of um, uh, 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 sort of corporate um, problems. So I think there are many reasons to think that uh, uh, on transport, at least, um, there are there are some uh, some positive signs. I think in in other areas, it, it is much more challenging, just because you know, as opposed to the kind of the the, the number of, of options available in, in the power sector I mentioned, 
uh, or the kind of the, the scale economies and, and large volume of production that we see uh, in, in, um, in vehicles um, on, on aviation, uh, in, uh, in energy intensive industries, in heat, uh, they're just, um, it's much more challenging. Um, uh, the, the, you know, the, the largest uh, single source of energy in this country is, is natural gas uh, for heat. Um, the options that are available are not, none of them are very easy or very cheap. Um, so either we talk, we're talking, we would, be, we would have to be talking about electrification, uh, moving towards heat pumps. Our climate's not terribly good for that. Our, the way in which we have some of the kind of, in the UK context, some of the most poorly insulated homes. Um, so I think there are a number of challenges in terms of electrification. There's a number, uh, you know, the alternatives are, you know, hydrogen. There, there are a number of different potential technical alternatives, but all of them involve much higher costs and, and quite dramatic and much more systemic changes. So, so we've got big challenges, but to, to go back to where we started on this, is what's, where's the role of the market and where's the role of the government or what sort of business model that may combine both can actually be best or most appropriate to adopt to address these challenges? Yeah, so I, I, as I said, in, in transport, I think there are reasons to believe that with, you know, clearly it's been helped along by, by government uh, subsidies uh, for, for electric vehicles, for example. Um, but by the same token, uh, you have uh, you know, a diversity of, of automotive uh, companies, you've got a lot of competition there, uh, and, and that, that, will, uh, that, that will mean that the private sector will help drive a lot of that through, through competition. I think in other areas like, like heat that I just mentioned, it's much harder to imagine that. Right? We're talking about the need for sort of a dramatic systemic change. You're talking about a very small number of actors, or actually largely regional monopoly actors. Um, so they're not going to be able to do that. Um, they're going to have to be imposing, I think, much higher costs on, on people. You know, people see the, um, it's, it's not, people aren't purely adopting electric vehicles uh, because they're saving the climate. Uh, they see this, you know, the, they're, they're happy about the acceleration they get, they're happy about uh, the, the fact that the, they're, they're very quiet vehicles, they're happy um, that, you know, out of, out of their tailpipe they don't get uh, the kind of nasty exhaust that they, they got from their uh, petrol cars, their diesel cars. Um, so I think, again, transport, I think there's, there's a lot of grounds for, for thinking that this is a very positive thing. I think in, in some of these other sectors like heat and, and, and energy intensive uh, industries, uh, we're going to have a much harder time. Michael, the role, the role of the state in all of this? Okay. Um, I think that it's important to remember that um, the government has never got out of energy. Um, you know, we're very conscious in the UK of the fact that we had a very comprehensive privatisation programme in which the privatisation of electricity generation, transmission, distribution and retail was a very significant element. We also privatised gas as well as electricity. But this, 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 the, all those systems were built in the state sector. Um, we had a very benign period whereby um, immediately after privatization uh, plants, power plants, uh, a lot of gas-fired power plants were built 
and they happened to be clean and they happened to be built because gas was cheap at the time, uh, the ca upfront capital costs of gas-fired power plants was low. Actually, since then, we are now back to a situation where almost every investment that is made in our privately owned energy system is backed by a government policy so that uh, there's basically no unregulated, ungovernment directed investments in our energy system. And that is true of, of private energy systems across uh, Europe. Um, and if we look across the world, the government remains heavily involved in every aspect of the energy system. Um, so I, spec I, I, I think a better way of looking at it is, well, what's the value of, of market uh, mechanisms to promote this energy transition? I, I think the value of the market clearly lies around a promotion of innovation. We still need to see new ideas coming forward, um, particularly in, in, in transportation and in heating. Um, we uh, and and in energy storage um, and i think we we still need to recognize the value of some market-based approaches to decarbonization around the, the simple pricing of carbon properly across uh, the whole economy because the problem with selective government intervention and governments like to specify which technologies they're going to back they like to back a big nuclear power plant you know because that's an eye-catching policy it has a sort of has the advantage of um, being a big hit on the uh, on the decarbonization target but the, the question that arises with climate change is do all these individual government interventions add up uh, and that's where we need some market mechanisms. We need comp comprehensive carbon pricing. Um, we need, or we need a, a, a um, an emissions trading scheme which covers all sectors, so we can trade off um, different technologies against each other. We can allow technologies to compete, and that's often something that governments are reluctant to. Um, really rely on to sort of, if you like, rely on market incentives to determine which technologies we actually use to decarbonize this, the system. Um, because every government has um, uh, its, its own industrial interests around energy production, um, which uh, are national and uh, are, are also um, simply to do with the lobbying power of particular interests within different countries. And, and in this particular case, where we want to decarbonize the whole world's energy system, then we, we need policies which actually add up. If I'm a pessimistic interpretation of what you're just saying, Michael, is that we've got market failure here, a classic market failure. Um, you know, why should private sector be concerned about um, positive, uh, negative externalities? But we've also got government failure here because the governments aren't looking longer term or they're captured by vested interests and so on. So if I had a pessimistic view, we're, we're not gonna move quickly enough to deal with these climate challenges. Do you agree or disagree with that? I completely agree with that. I mean, I think you know, history is very much on your side for what you've just said. Um, you know, the climate challenge was uh, identified in the 1980s as being a global priority and we have made scarcity 
any progress since then, in spite of many um, international efforts to promote coordinated action. David, do you... Um... I, I think that there is a political economy challenge here that, that we often kind of um, glide by. And, and that, you know, that is that the, um, you know, there's very strong uh, logic for, um, for, for taking uh, climate action. Um, but as, as I think Michael pointed out, the coordination aspect is, is challenging, so it makes it very difficult um, to, to justify why are we doing a lot if China or other countries where are seeing a dramatic increase in emissions aren't. So I think that's one aspect of it. Uh, another is inevitably this kind of question of future generations, that, that, that it, it is very difficult to, um, uh, for society to agree on things that will benefit future generations uh, come at maybe potentially significant cost um, to, the, to the current generation. And I think, you know, in some ways maybe the biggest challenge is that unlike the um, kind of local pollution problems of the past, uh, the smog in London or the, the smog in Los Angeles and, and, you know, that you would have had in the 1950s, we then kind of took on a program of action that resulted in kind of visible improvements. Uh, that that you know make people you know <laughs> you know can see the difference. You take a you look at a photo of Los Angeles in 1955 and and today and it's it's transformed. I think the problem with climate change is what we're talking about is a counterfactual. What we're talking about is the problem will continue to worsen. Right. The problem will, it's it's just a matter of will it will it get much worse or a little bit less than that. And I, I think that's a, that, that, I think, is a very tough sell. That, that's a very challenging sell. I think that's why it's very positive if you can get more you know, private interest aligned with some of those kind of emissions reductions objectives. Uh, so you know, the fact that um, you know, automotive companies See, you know, see, you know, new markets in terms of electric vehicles. Uh, the fact that uh, companies will also see the potential for energy storage, as a, you know, kind of in batteries and so on, as an outgrowth of that. Again, maybe another very positive thing that comes along with that, with that kind of sectoral uh, decarbonization. Um, so, you know, at the very least, we should be trying to drive change in those. Um, sectors where there's you know there's quite good alignment. Um, I, I'd like to believe, and, and I think again, if certain countries can take the lead in terms of, of making making progress uh, on on certain technologies like a carbon capture and storage, like a decarbonized uh, heating system, uh, then, then you know I think then they might act as um, bellwethers act, act as uh, exemplars that others might follow and say, oh, well, if Norway can do this project or these sets of projects, or if Sweden can do this, or if the UK even uh, could do, could do a, a, a set of, of these things, then that's, you know, then others could say, oh, well, it's not, it's not as difficult. It's, it's, it's feasible, uh, for example, to develop a, an industrial cluster that's uh, largely decarbonized. 
But I think that's what we need to, to show. That's what we need to be looking okay, so, for. So there's, a, there's a degree of um, moderate optimism there. Uh, and if we can achieve those um, effective clusters and technological developments. I, I just want to end with a, uh, a question about the, the current state of the world economy and the implications for the set energy sector. Because what we're living in is in a world where arguably the world's becoming more fragmented. The global economy is suffering a number of um, uh, a number of pressures and we may be becoming less globalized rather than more globalized. Will that create even more challenges for the sector and challenges for some countries that depend on international supplies of energy? What, what's your views about these sort of the prospects over the next five years, particularly for what I think we think we'll probably agree is the most challenging, perhaps the most important target is to deal with climate change. Michael. I, I, that's an interesting question. I, I think Energy has always been a heavily uh, internationalized sector, and it's it's also you know whenever we think about world trade, we should think about energy. Fifteen percent of world trade is energy, and, and mining products. Um, so it's always been something in a in a way that, funnily enough, has has brought the world together. You know, even at the height of the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union was still exporting gas to Europe uninterrupted. Um, so uh, I, I wouldn't be particularly worried about that. I, I think it is true that politicians often use international concerns about energy security as a way to get support for domestic energy investments. Um, and interestingly, what's happened in Europe, I think, is that a lot of the support that uh, the European Union has put into um, energy and climate policies is definitely... Um, being based on uh, strengthening uh, Europe's energy security and, and, in a sense, reducing Europe's dependence on imported fossil fuels, increasing its dependence on locally produced renewable energy. Uh, but that has had a very beneficial side effect for the rest of the world in that it's, it's arguably moderated global energy prices and brought down the price of energy for the rest of the world and increased everybody else's energy security as well. Um, because funnily enough, uh, anybody who individually invests in energy security it does produce a positive externality for everybody else. Um, you know, if China goes into Africa and manages to extract more oil and gas um, because of its uh, a geopolitical leverage with African countries, that actually increases the global supply of oil and gas, even though that oil, that particular oil and gas might be going to China. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think um, that energy is anything other than a sort of positive for um, uh, global uh, international relations when people actually stop to think about it. Um, um, and I think it will continue to be the case that uh, Europe will... Uh, make more progress on decarbonisation. I, I think one of the things that is true of European energy and climate policy is it has made remarkable progress. Um, it's, not, it's had uh, relatively ambitious 2020 targets. It's now put in place relatively ambitious 2030 targets. That, that will see um, the share of renewable energy go up from 20% to 32.5% across all uses of energy in the European Union. 
um, it will see um, further significant reductions in CO2. Um, and I think Europe actually provides a good example of international cooperation on energy and climate policies, which hopefully the rest of the world can continue to learn from. David. I mean, it is striking. I mean, petroleum is probably the only truly global commodity. Um, I think there are, um, as you point to, I mean, I think there are a number of signs of, of fracturing and, and, um, and, and reasons for concern. Um, but but, but I, I don't think energy is particularly a one of those. Uh, and, and if anything, we are seeing, you know, continued cooperation uh, in many of these areas. Um, I think um, uh, the, the, the benefits of, um, of uh, uh, access to cheap energy um, helps in terms of uh, development, as, we, as we've talked about earlier. I think it's also striking that um, I think there were concerns that at the time of, of uh, say, in, in, the, in the 2000s, uh, before the price of oil fell, uh, that the very high price of oil was helping to sustain a lot of the uh, investment in, in low carbon options like, like renewables. And then when we did see this dramatic drop in, in, in the oil price uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, there was concern that that might mean that we would you know, take our foot off, off, off the pedal, that, that, that we wouldn't um, continue that sort of same level of investment, we wouldn't see the same sort of progress in terms of low carbon investments. And that actually hasn't, hasn't been the case. Um, part of that is the inertia associated with uh, government policies to, to support uh, renewables. Um, some of it is that at least some of these policies that have, have, have supported uh, renewables have actually harnessed uh, competition. Uh, so I think it's important to say that you know you don't just get uh, it's not just by virtue of, of um, uh, scale economies, but but you know say in the UK we've we've had uh, auctions for offshore wind uh, that have continued to to bring down uh, costs uh, over over the last few years quite dramatically, essentially dropping in in half uh, you know within within a decade. So, I mean it's important to say that it's also supported by you know. 20 odd billion uh, pounds of, of, of government support. So there, you know, I think there's an important role for, for government um, su support here. Um, um, but, but, but I think it is, you know, again, look, looking forward, I think um, it, it is that, you know, hopefully um, synergistic or successful uh, interaction between, you know, government support for, uh, for learning, for getting getting us up the learning curve for, for supporting um, uh, technologies at their early stages. Uh, and then, you know, it, it then no longer needs that same, uh, same degree of, of, of support um, and, and it becomes much more of a, a commercial venture. So I think that's kind of where, you know, because again, the, the scale of the overall level of support that would be needed is, is sort of eye-watering. Um, so if, if we have, you know, so we sort of need to get a grips, support um, uh, low carbon investments for, say, power, then for transport, but then if we want to be able to have any kind of money to deal with these other tougher sectors, we need to, you know, hopefully have, have those 
essentially those sectors be self-sustaining in, in terms of delivering low-carbon electricity and, and low-carbon transport. Good, we, 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 we've run out of time. It's, it's good to end with some, some elements of optimism based on the, uh, the very important challenges facing not only the sector, but perhaps most importantly, um, cha uh, the challenges facing uh, global climate uh, change. Um, I'd like to thank uh, contributors today, uh, Professor Michael Pollitt and Dr. David Reiner. Um, thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us next time.